Amen. Amen, brothers. Open your Bibles to John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27 is our passage for tonight. And as you know, we're in this series now uh, through the end of the year called The Passion of Christ, The Suffering of Christ. And specifically tonight, I've titled this message, A Contrast of Faithfulness and Failure. A Contrast of Faithfulness and Failure. Here in John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. If you've ever purchased a diamond or a diamond ring, perhaps for your wife at some point, then you know that the best way to observe a beautiful diamond is by setting that diamond upon a dark background. And in this way, you can really appreciate and observe the beautiful facets of that beautiful rock, this diamond. And in a sense, I want you to take that picture and think about our passage for tonight, because this is also true with regards to what we're going to see concerning the the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're able to observe the beauty and the brightness of the glory of Christ in this particular passage set within the background of the bleak humiliation of Peter, as we're going to see here. We're able to appreciate the, the bright light of the Lord Jesus Christ as we see the dark weakness of humanity on display in the life of the Apostle Peter, a preeminent apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, John is very intentional in in how he put together this particular account, this particular narrative here. And he wants us to see in this account a, a sharp contrast, a stark contrast between the faithfulness of Jesus here in our text and the failure of Peter, the preeminent apostle of the Lord. And once again, remember that that having departed from the upper room, Jesus and his disciples have arrived at a known place called the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw this last week in our text. And after much prayer by Jesus, it's here in this known place of Jesus, by Jesus and his disciples, including Judas, that Judas shows up with an entire mob to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ, to betray him who He once professed to be his Lord, but he was deceptive and obviously duped by Satan and by his own greed. And so now what transpires in the aftermath of that uh, betrayal and arrest are two separate trials. And you understand these are really mock trials because in reality, the Jewish leaders have already arrived at a verdict. This is the case especially with regards to the Jewish trial that's going to take place. The Jewish trial is just a formality, really. And so you have this religious trial before the Jewish authorities that Jesus undergoes. And then you have also this civil or political trial before the Roman authorities. Later on, Jesus is going to stand before Pilate. And then Pilate is going to ship Jesus out to Herod. And then Herod is going to kick Jesus back to Pilate again. And then Jesus is going to be basically handed over for crucifixion for suffering and crucifixion. But before that, you have the Jewish trial where you have three phases or three steps in this particular Jewish trial. You have phase number one, which was an informal questioning by Annas. We're going to see this in a minute. The former high priest and father-in-law of the current high priest Caiaphas. This is where our passage falls in, verses 12 through 14 and verses 19 through 23 in particular. 
Jesus stands before Annas, the former high priest and father-in-law of the current high priest. Then you have phase two, which is an arraignment before Caiaphas and the Jewish Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the Jews, which take place, takes place at nighttime. That's in the parallel accounts as well. And that, of course, is a mock trial because they've already arrived really at a verdict. Then you have phase three, which is really a formal condemnation by the Sanhedrin and, the, and Caiaphas, where in a brief meeting after dawn, they formally condemn Jesus. And you can find that in the parallel accounts as well of, of Mark 15, verse 1, Matthew 27, verse 1, and Luke chapter 22. They had already reached a verdict already illegally at night, but in phase three, the, the Sanhedrin meets together during the day to formalize their illegal verdict against Jesus Christ. And so those are the three phases which make up the, the Jewish trial before the Jewish authority. And in our passage, really, we're looking at phase one of this Jewish trial before Annas. But interestingly, in our passage, as John writes this narrative, we have this, this back and forth between Jesus' faithfulness put forward and Peter's failure. Jesus had previously told his disciples in the upper room that they would all turn away from him. Peter was so offended, if you remember, that he, he proclaims, I will never abandon you, right? Even though everybody else will abandon you, I will never do that. Well, now we see the fulfillment of what Jesus told Peter that he and the others would do as well. And that Peter would deny Jesus three times. And so we see this stark contrast between Jesus' courage and Peter's cowardice. Between Jesus' faithfulness and Peter's failure. Okay? And so as we look at this contrast, I think first of all, we need to renew once again our appreciation of Jesus' joyful submission. I want you to write that down if you're taking notes. Our first point as we look at our text is that we need to appreciate Jesus' joyful submission once again. We, see, we saw this last week, but it's, a, it's worth a quick reminder. Nothing here is a surprise. Nothing here is plan B. Nothing that takes place in the life of Jesus here is a, is a tragedy, as people would say. Jesus is in total control throughout, and he's more than willing to be spent in order to die for, for sins. And so having protected his disciples, he allows himself to be arrested. Look at verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now this is important here. What was legal, according to Jewish law, think about this, this is key. What was legal, according to Jewish law, was to wait for daylight to arrive before proceeding with trying Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord. In other words, it was illegal by their own Jewish law to have a night trial like this. But of course, these religious leaders are intent on, on killing Jesus. They are in a hurry to get this plan going. So they could care less about legality, right? They had already pre-planned this whole thing. And so notice in verse 13, first they led him to, to Annas. They lead Jesus to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, if you look down with me in verse 19, Annas is referred to there as the high priest. But John doesn't mean this in a technical sense. This would be like, like when we refer to our former president as what? Mr. President, right? They're not just a former president. 
we refer to them as Mr. President. It's a way to grant honor to that former president. Well, this is the case even with Annas. Annas had been high priest from about 6 AD to about 15 or 16 AD or so. And he had been removed by the Roman government because of the fact that they weren't too crazy about Annas, the Roman government. But more so because the Romans didn't want anyone to have too much influence. And so they had removed Annas some time ago from the high priesthood. The problem was this, that Annas's son-in-law, Caiaphas, had now been high priest for the last 20 years. And then after that, after Caiaphas, history would tell us that five sons and one grandson of Annas followed as high priests. And so even though Annas was technically not the high priest, he wielded much power and exerted much influence amongst the Jewish people and within the Jewish Sanhedrin. If you've ever seen the movie The Godfather, how many of you have seen that movie? Yeah. If you've ever seen that movie, then you understand this, right? He was like the, like the Don Colleone of the Godfather movie, right? This guy, Annas. He was like the Jewish mafia lord. He was a powerhouse of a, of a dictator, this man. Annas was a corrupt man. In fact, Annas was at the center of regulating so-called temple worship in, during those days, which really had become a spectacle over the years. This is why, if you remember, even in the Gospel of John, what does Jesus do when he go, enters the temple? He overturns the tables, right? Jesus is basically calling them out. Because Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin had turned the temple into this business, into a circus, rather than a worship, a time of worship or a place of worship. Annas was at the center of, of all of this. He was highly influential. He had a lot of pull. Now notice John's inspired commentary also on Caiaphas. Look at verse 14. It was Caiaphas, John tells us, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Listen, as John pens his gospel, what he's doing here is recalling what happened some 50 years ago from the time that he writes the gospel, and he reminds his readers, us, of the great irony of what's happening to Jesus before our very eyes as we read this. It's as if he's saying to us as readers, do you guys remember what Caiaphas said back in John chapter 11, verse 47? We saw that passage together, if you remember. After Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and the religious leaders were concerned about Jesus' growing influence, it was at that time that Caiaphas, in essence, if you remember, said, look, if anyone needs to die in order to preserve our power and our influence and our prestige as a Sanhedrin, it's got to be Jesus and he wasn't saying this in a positive way. He was essentially saying, if it's going to be us or Jesus, let Jesus be the one who gets taken out by the Roman Empire so that we can preserve our position. And so John essentially is saying here, what he's saying is this has now come to fruition. The only problem is that little does Caiaphas understand that Jesus is going to suffer a substitutionary death. That this is a redemptive death for sins. And think about this. As Jesus joyfully submits himself, brothers, this is the eternal son of God we're talking about here. This is the one through whom the universe was created who joyfully submits himself to these wicked human beings. This is the one who dwells in unapproachable light, joyfully submitting himself to sinful creatures like Annas and Caiaphas and the wicked, corrupt Jewish Sanhedrin. 
I can't help but to return again and again to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 in my studies and my reflections on the Passion Week and really the Gospel of John. There the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. He says that, that we as Christians need to run the race of the Christian life. How? Looking to Jesus, the, uh, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then he says this, who for the joy that was set before him. What joy was set before Jesus? Whereby he was willing to joyfully submit himself to going to the cross. What joy? It was the joy of pleasing his father, right? By fulfilling his eternal plan. And it was the joy of saving sinners from hell and condemnation. Such as us, brothers. Such as us. It was for this joy that Jesus endured the cross, he says. Despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, and I want our, our hearts to be filled with a great sense of, of adoration and appreciation so that we're moved, brothers, all the more to, to worship and to service in the light of what we read here that Jesus was willing to do for sinners. I don't want our hearts to be unaffected. I don't want our hearts to be untouched, brothers. I don't want our hearts to be subtly hardened to the sufferings of Jesus for the sake of us as sinners. Listen to J.C. Ryle. And what he writes, quote, we can easily conceive that this was not the least heavy part of our blessed Savior's passion or suffering. Imagine to be seized unjustly as a criminal and put on trial when innocent is a severe affliction. But to hear people inventing false charges against us and coining slanders, to listen to all the malignant tongues let loose against our character and know that it is untrue, this is a cross indeed. All this was part of the cup of suffering which Jesus drank for our sakes. Great indeed was the price at which our souls were redeemed, end quote. So true, isn't it? That he underwent this and he did it, brothers, joyfully, knowing that this was the only way for sinners such as us to be rescued by faith in him alone. I want us to appreciate the joyful submission of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now next, John simultaneously now shows us the contrast to Jesus. And so second, I want you to write this down. We must be humbled by the reality of human weakness. We must be humbled by the reality of human weakness. We'll see this point especially in the latter verses of our passage. But the way that John pens this account is, is very intentional. I want you to know that. Again, he goes back and forth between Jesus and Peter to show us the contrast between the faithful obedience and submission of Jesus and the failure of Peter, even though he is a preeminent apostle. And what we have here in verses 15 through 18 is Peter's first denial, showing great human weakness. You know, the end of Matthew chapter 26 and verse 56, write that down. Matthew 26, 56 says that all the disciples at this point fled as Jesus had foretold that they would. But Mark 14, 54 says, says that Peter followed from a distance. But at least he followed, didn't he? Got to give him a little credit, right? This Peter who sticks his foot in his mouth. He's fearful for his own life. But Peter follows. He's curious about what's going to happen to Jesus. So we got to give it to him. He certainly loves Jesus. I think Peter had a sincere love for Jesus, as we as, uh, as Christians have a sincere love for Jesus. 
Otherwise, he would not have followed the mob from a distance as he did. Earlier that night, Peter had sworn allegiance to Jesus, but now he's going to show great weakness here. Look at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Most believe that that is John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John the Apostle, and I would agree that this is John. And John seems to have some close connections with the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And so the text says in verse 15, Since that disciple, speaking of John the Apostle, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Not everyone could do that. Not everyone can get into the headquarters of the high priest like that. John seems to have some connection, some close association, where he seems to have sort of VIP access. But look at verse 15. But Peter, on the other hand, stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, meaning John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So take note. Pause for a minute here. Simultaneous to Jesus being upstairs at this point, in some secret room, being interrogated here at the headquarters of the high priest by Annas, Peter, on the other hand, finds himself downstairs in the courtyard of the high priest. All the while Jesus is being drilled somewhere on the second floor by Annas, the former high priest, Peter is about to undergo some serious testing brothers down in the courtyard of the high priest. After the kind of night it's been, you can bet that the last thing that Peter wants is publicity, right? The last thing that Peter wants is attention. But notice what happens in verse 17. The servant girl, our text says, at the door. Now keep in mind, this is just a, a lowly little servant girl of no great significance. Her simple job is just to tend to the door at the front gate of the headquarters of the high priest. There's probably other guards that are there as well. But her job is to tend to this door, to be the, the gatekeeper, so to speak. This lowly servant girl said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Not necessarily a threatening question, right? Jesus, or she's aware that, that John's a disciple of Jesus, John's known to people there. That's why he's able to get in. And she's now asking Peter in a non-threatening way, are you one as well? Well, what a great opportunity for Peter, right? What a divine appointment there. Here is his chance. He could answer to this, to this little girl, why, yes, I am. And you know what? For all those who are, of you who are standing here, what of it, right? What does he answer instead? Notice. He said, I am not. Strike one. Denial number one. In essence, what Peter says is, I am not a follower of Jesus. As if to say, I am not identified with Jesus. I am not a learner of Jesus, which is what disciple meant. Meant a learner, a follower of someone's teaching. Hmm. You see, Peter's concern at that precise moment, brothers, rather than loyalty and worship of Christ and making the stand for Jesus was self-preservation more than anything else, right? To preserve himself and his own life. Now, I don't mean to imply that Peter's experience here exactly parallels our experience in the Christian life as believers, 
But isn't this a microcosm of what happens to us at times in the Christian life? I know for me it has been. Maybe there are those moments like, like this in our Christian lives to a lesser degree where we might fall prey to, to instead of loving the Lord in that moment and making a stand for, for Jesus, we might struggle to speak up about the truth. There may be something taking place that we need to speak up against in gentleness and kindness, and we don't do so at that moment. We allow the fear of man to drive us rather than love for Christ and courage in Christ. Maybe the Lord has provided some divine appointments for you, even in the present time. People, moments where you can share Jesus, but you have failed to do so. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're intimidated. Maybe you, you deem that there's too much to lose in making a stand for Christ. God may grant us an opportunity to defend the truth, but instead of defending the truth, we, we are ashamed of the truth at that moment. Oh, we love Christ, but at that moment in our weakness, we display a, a cowardly behavior that instead of, where instead of making a stand for Jesus, we cower away from the truth. And so I think to a lesser degree, we can certainly and humbly identify with Peter's weakness, right? If we're honest with, with ourselves and before the Lord and with one another. Now, at this point, Peter may have hoped that his answer to this girl's question, I am not, would have, would have been the end of the discussion. But in the providence of God, it wasn't the end of the discussion. God was not done with Peter. Look at verse 18. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. During that particular Passover season and during that time of the night, it was fairly chilly. And thus, they, they had this fire going, sort of like a bonfire. And they were standing and warming themselves, these servants and officers and others. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself, says John. Again, notice that Peter has now made his way from the front of the, of the, the entrance of the courtyard to the high priest, right to the center of this courtyard. The courtyard of the high priest was this open area in the middle of the palace of the high priest. It was the, the unroofed section of the courtyard, if you will. And so it's here that you have officers, Roman and Jewish, as well as servants and others, and they're hanging out, warming themselves in the cool of a spring evening, sort of like a bonfire in the center of this, head, this headquarters, awaiting their next orders. Now, obviously, Peter is also cold. So what does he do? He goes over there to meet a physical need. He's cold himself. But isn't it telling, brothers, that that? Peter is right smack in the midst of these scoffers. Right smack in the midst of the enemies of, of Christ. And you see, John is very specific here with the details of, uh, as he recounts this again. 50 years later as he's penning his gospel. He was an eyewitness and he's retelling of the details of this setting. And what John wants us to know is this. Peter was right there with them. Trying to sort of be one of them, incognito. Peter was, in essence, a sitting duck. He was an accident waiting to happen, right? Keep in mind, this is the same Peter who swore allegiance and loyalty to Jesus just that night and has done before. This is the same Peter who just swung his sword at Malchus in an effort to protect Jesus. But Peter is, is weak. Peter is weak. Though he is an apostle. And as is often said, 
The best of men are what? Men at best. That was the case for Peter as well. When push comes to shove, Peter was just a, was just a man. And that's true for us, isn't it? So are we. So are we. And the faster, brothers, that some of us humbly acknowledge our weaknesses, the faster we will be at running to Jesus Christ for relief. Amen? And for being renewed. And for being uh, matured in Christ-likeness. I think there is this, this, this kind of mentality and mindset that even infiltrates the church. That for you to become vulnerable and to become accountable and to be open with other men about your weaknesses, uh, that, that's not kosher. That's not something that we want in the church. You know what? We want exactly that. We want you to be honest about your weaknesses. And we should be willing to do that mutually for one another. The faster that we realize that we don't have it all together, that we are weak like Peter, who was a preeminent apostle, just like him, that we are weak, the faster we will run to Christ and to greater accountability with other brothers who love us, who can help us. Amen? And that's what we're all about here, even as a men's ministry. And what we want to be all the more about, brothers, that you would open your life up so that others can speak into your life, that you would be authentic and genuine in the sanctified kind of sense about those weaknesses in your life. That people might come alongside of you and help you and vice versa in those struggles. And so God uses our weaknesses as he's going to use Peter's weakness to humble us, to teach us lessons we would otherwise not learn on our own, to break our pride. This is what is happening with Peter already. Now notice John transports us back now to the second floor. Again, he's intentional on this. He's showing these contrasts. We're back to the second floor now in verses 19 through 24, where Jesus is simultaneously and secretly and illegally, I might add, at night being drilled by Annas, the godfather of the Sanhedrin, right? And so third, write this down. We must be amazed by our Lord's strength. We must be amazed by our Savior's strength that through all of Jesus' sufferings and these interrogations, he displays this astounding courage and strength. Look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and, and his teaching. Now listen, according to Jewish law, Annas should be asking others about Jesus' teaching. He should be going to other witnesses, not Jesus himself. Similar to our court of law, anyone brought to trial was innocent until proven guilty. But remember, they've already made that de the decision. Back in John chapter 11, verse 53, we're told that they had already made plans to put Jesus to, to death. They had already arrived at a verdict way before this. They're not concerned about legality. They're not concerned about fair due process, about legitimate witnesses. They could care less about all of these things. And the parallel accounts, in fact, tell us that they were running around even trying to procure witnesses, credible witnesses, and they weren't finding any. So the witnesses that they were bringing to, to, to testify against Jesus were being inconsistent, contradicting one another. So this is a mess, isn't it? With all kinds of illegal activity taking place. And so Annas here isn't sincerely interested in knowing this, this information. He's arrived at the conclusion already. This is just a, a formality. He's trying to pigeonhole Jesus to get Jesus to say something that's going to indict him so that they can bring this before the Roman government. 
Because if you understood Jewish law, the Jews didn't have the ultimate authority in that day to perform capital punishment on anyone, so they needed to find something to indict Jesus, to bring to the Roman government. That's exactly what Annas is trying to do with Jesus, illegally, might I add. Notice how wisely, however, Jesus responds to him in verse 20. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. You know, there's some irony in what Jesus is saying here. And a subtle even, even exhortation to Annas. Because the fact is that the religious leaders are doing the opposite that Jesus has done. They're doing everything in secret, aren't they? They're conspiring in the dark and in isolation, but Jesus' whole ministry has been out in the open, public, in broad daylight, ministering to people and teaching all kinds of different people and healing every kind of disease. He hasn't hidden himself from anyone. By the way, do you notice how Jesus detracts attention away from his disciples? Therein makes himself the issue. Annas has asked him about his disciples as well, right? Not just his teaching, but tell me about your disciples, but look at the text with me in verse 20. I have spoken. I always taught. I have said nothing in secret. Annas has asked not only about Jesus, but about the disciples. But Jesus, in essence, says, Annas, this is about me. Even now, in the way that Jesus is responding, in other words, brothers, he is fulfilling his high priestly prayer, isn't he? Protecting his disciples. This is about me, not about my disciples. Now, the other thing Jesus also does is call Annas to the carpet on the witnesses issue. Look at verse 21. Why do you ask me, he says to Annas, or asks him, ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. In other words, Annas, if you really want to know, there are ample witnesses who can bear witness to the fact that I haven't been divisive or erroneous or, or hiding myself away from you guys in anything that I've done. The Lord is not trying to be uncooperative here or evasive. He's calling this man to the carpet. You do everything in secret. There are multiple witnesses that can bear witness to the fact that I have done everything in public, in the open. Speak to those witnesses as your law requires. But of course, this isn't about legality again. This is about executing their already pre-planned conspiracy, right? But boy, our Lord is displaying such great strength, isn't he? And so wise, isn't he? So much so that they have no choice, watch this, but to resort to violence. Look at verse 22. When Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answered the high priest? Um, I thought the high priest wanted answers. Jesus is merely answering, right? This will be the first of many times that our Lord will be struck. And just keep in mind who this is, brothers, that this wretched officer has just put his hands on. This is the eternal Son of God. And this is such an example here, by the way, of what happens when people don't want, really want answers to the truth, right? I have experienced not something like this, but indifference, hostility, in the process of witnessing to someone, someone even wanting to resort to, to violence. In fact, I recall back in college as a college group, 
at a church that I was attending at the time. We used to go to the, to the, on, on these college campuses that we attended to do open-air preaching and to evangelize and have conversations with students. And I'll never forget my buddy who got up on the, on the stool there and was preaching and how there was a, a heckler who initially was very calm. He was just calling things out. And my friend, very graciously and very gently, he was but very definitive. My friend was just answering this guy's questions. At first, it was very calm. And then as my, my friend started to wrap up his message, the guy began to get more and more aggressive toward the things that my friend was saying, gentle but definitive answers. And so his voice began to get louder and louder. And then my friend closed in prayer. And right after, this guy goes up to my friend, puts his finger on his chest, and basically threatens to punch him out. And what a testimony my friend was. He didn't lose his cool. He was kind to this man. This was the way that Jesus was. Perfectly, right? Perfectly. Look at the kindness of Christ. This is the one with legions of angels at his disposal after a guy just did this to him. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. In other words, let's focus on what I've said. I've addressed, let's address that. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? <laughs> Man, the Lord is extremely gracious, isn't he? Some 30 years later, Peter would reflect on this as he writes his letter in 1 Peter chapter, verse, chapter 2 and verse 22. And he says this. He says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he uttered no threats, or he did not threaten, but listen to this, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Boy, that's the key, isn't it? If Jesus, in the midst of suffering injustice, entrusted himself to his Father, how much more us, brothers? We need to leave room for God's justice and for God's vindication rather than take matters into our own hands, right? Let the truth spoken with gentleness and kindness and graciousness be the offense if somebody gets offended. Don't let it be your manner and your aggression in the flesh. Amen? We all need to grow in that area. Our, G our Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect example of that. Now watch this. At this point, they should have released Jesus. They have no proof, no legitimate witnesses, etc. But instead, Annas sends Jesus off to Caiaphas because in reality, the verdict has already been reached, as we've said. Look at verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now you realize, not to be repetitive, but this is all illegal activity on multiple levels. There are no true witnesses. No crime has been committed. In fact, when you survey the Pharisaical laws of the day, which were supposed to guide Jewish trials of, of this nature, including the trial of Jesus, this is illegal on multiple levels. For example, one, such a trial involving the possibility of capital punishment could not happen at night. When is this taking place? At night. Two, no trial possibly involving capital punishment should be held after a major festival. What has just been celebrated there in Jerusalem? Passover. That's exactly what they're doing. They're violating as the leaders, the, religion, the, 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 the um, spiritual leaders, so-called, of the Jewish people. They are violating their own laws. Third, in a normal trial, 
The benefit of the doubt, similar to our country today, was given to the accused. Is that what they're doing for Jesus? Not so. They've already decided, and they've conspired to put him to death. The point is that Jesus' trial, brothers, before the Jews, was a violation of these and other principles of, of justice. And, but even in the midst of all of that injustice, the Lord displays profound strength and wisdom so that we should be astounded and amazed as we contemplate his response to them. Now, how's Peter holding up? Right? How's Peter holding up? Back to Peter, John tells us, takes us. The contrast to Jesus. And here, finally, in verses 25 through 27, I merely want to encourage us to take comfort in God's loving restoration, brothers. Because this is eventually what's going to happen with Peter, right? But we see the other side of this right now, the beginning point of this. Look at verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was, was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Now things are intensifying. He denied it and said, I am not. Strike two. Denial number two. Again, here, here's Peter's opportunity to make a stand for Jesus as they ask him again to say, you know what? I have been with him. And you know, he's not who people think he is. He's far more than that. In the popular opinion of the age, he is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the hope of Israel. He's everything that we have been anticipating. What an opportunity for Peter. Of course, that's not what Peter answers. In Mark's parallel account, in Mark 14, 68, it says that Peter denied even knowing Jesus, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Double whammy denial. I neither know in the sense of knowing him theoretically, nor understand, which has to do with experiential knowledge of, of Jesus. In other words, what Peter is saying is, I neither know this man in theory, nor in practice. I neither know this man intellectually, nor do I have a relationship with him. Denial number two. Boy, that's the most hurtful kind of disowning of someone, isn't it? Brothers, Peter is straight up, bold-faced, denying any association as far as a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was with him for three plus years. Jesus served Peter just like everybody else. He was the recipient of God's grace. And hearing the amazing teaching of Jesus and the power of Jesus and watching the authority of Jesus as he had compassion toward people. And this is what it comes down to for Peter. Major denial. Here he is in the palace of the high priest, curious as to what's to happen to Jesus. But when push comes to shove, what does he do? He turns his back on his Lord, who has been so kind and good to Peter. The other gospel accounts, by the way, in particular Mark, indicate that Peter tried to create distance between himself and the interrogating crowd, that he withdrew back to the covered archway at the entrance of the palace, which overlooked the street. Mark puts it this way, that Peter went out onto the porch. Essentially, he tried to create distance so that he wouldn't be interrogated anymore. But as Sinclair Ferguson comments, a change of location is no substitute for a change of heart. A change of location is no substitute for a change of heart. In other words, it's quite possible to change your outward circumstances, but your heart still be even farther from God 
than ever before. And that's what happened with Peter. His heart wasn't right. Peter attempted to remove himself from being the focus, but the farther, farther that he tries to physically withdraw, the more the spotlight continues to fall on him, right? And people are interrogating him. Look at verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Boy, now Peter's recent past comes back to haunt him, right? Malchus' relative, also a servant of the high priest, is interrogating Peter now. What's Peter going to do? Is he finally going to make a stand for Jesus? No way, man. Look at verse 27. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Strike three. Denial number three. Just like Jesus said it would happen. Again, Mark's account really fills in some of the other details for us. And there in Mark's account, in Mark 14, we're told that Peter really panicked. Mark 14, 71 says that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He even began to refer to Jesus, his Lord, in an impersonal way. He's just a man and nothing more, is what Peter says in essence. As the people opposing him grew, so the pressure mounted and Peter broke. And the cursing and the swear there, the swearing, doesn't mean that he was uttering bad words, i.e. profanity as we would know it. It means that Peter was actually calling down a curse from God upon himself, supposedly to bear witness that he didn't know Jesus. May God do so to me and my family if I'm not saying the truth. May God strike me dead if I'm lying is what he's saying. How hardened Peter had become, right? It was this kind of a thing. It's like today when someone says, I swear on my mother's grave. That's the idea. Man, should, this should be the moment when Peter now pauses and says, I need to stop now. I need to repent. I need to confess my sin to the Lord. I need to get my heart right. I need to be truthful with these people and be a witness of Christ and the fact that I do know him. This should be that moment, but Peter is in the thick of despair. He's in the thick of his sin, right? He's gone to the point where he's even willing to bring down God's curses upon himself. There is no fear of God at that moment in the heart of Peter, a healthy reverential awe of God. But isn't this so indicative of a hardened, unrepentant heart? We can get this way as men. Where we can get to this state where we're more fearful of, of men than we are of God. When brothers, we're more fearful of the consequences that people can bring upon us than of God's loving discipline if we don't obey him. Because he's our heavenly father who loves us and who wants what's best for us if you're in Christ. And yet the least of our concern... Not to be what people can do, right? The greater concern ought to be what God thinks about our sin against him. And by the way, all four Gospels mention the, the cock crowing as a way to emphasize the precise fulfillment of Jesus' words to Peter. They emphasize the fact that Peter has just disowned the very one who was suffering on his behalf and would die for him on the cross. And so devastating was this moment that Mark 14, 72 says that Peter began to weep. And the sense is that he rushed out and he was weeping continually. Can you blame him? 
From a human standpoint, this was a colossal failure on the part of Peter. Devastating. Where do we go for comfort with regards to Peter? Well, the comfort goes back to what Jesus told Peter back in Luke 22, verse 31. Write that down, Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And here it is, Luke twenty-two thirty-two. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Wow. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Boy, all along, what comfort. Jesus knew all along that Peter would go through this. But equally, he prayed for him. And Jesus would be with him through the Holy Spirit to strengthen Peter so that he would come out on the other side and be mightily used of God. Do we not have a gracious Savior, brothers? Such a kind Savior. Later, Peter would be forgiven and restored and by the end of John's gospel, he would be charged by King Jesus himself to be one of the key figures, pillars of the early church. What a gracious God of second chances, right? Have you experienced that in your life? I have so many times, brothers, to a lesser degree than this. But again and again, a merciful, gracious Heavenly Father has been there for me. And I'm so grateful for that. I hope that you are as well. Listen, this was the journey of a true follower of Christ. And God is a God of second chances. Even if you've blown it massively, maybe with failure in your life, maybe moral failure in your life. Listen, there is, there is forgiveness at the foot of the cross, right? What a reminder here in the example of Peter that whom God uses greatly are people whom God breaks and humbles greatly. And so take comfort, brothers, in God's loving restoration in your life found in Jesus Christ alone. Well, I'm a huge lover of church history, and especially of the Reformation. Thomas Cranmer, who many of you know about, maybe you've read material by Thomas Cranmer, is, a, is one of my favorite reformers. He was one of the moving forces of the Protestant Reformation in the mid-16th century or so in England, and he was known, Thomas Cranmer was, for his bold stance during the Protestant Reformation. But here's what Many people don't talk about or perhaps don't even know about Thomas Cranmer. It was that at one point before his death, Cranmer had fully denied Christ only to confess him again later in his life. It was in 1555 that Cranmer was excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church in Rome. But as the Roman Catholic Church turned up the heat and, and pressure mounted, Cranmer weakened in his commitment to Christ. He even went so far as to sign a statement in which he essentially denied Christ and his Protestant faith, thinking that doing that would save his life or spare his life. And the opposite happened. And here's what happened later on. Just before he was being put to death by Queen Mary, who we know as Bloody Mary back in the day, right? Cranmer renounced his denial of Jesus and his faith, and once more, in the clearest, most thunderous way, he made a bold stand for Christ, this man. And it was while being burned at the stake that Cranmer took his very hand, the very hand with which he had signed the denial, and he held that same hand in the flames until it was burned to a crisp. And then the flames then scorched his body, and he died as a martyr for Christ. Think about that. Even Thomas Cranmer, 
Though used mightily of God, a great reformer had a temporary lapse of faith, a moment of, of weakness, a season of weakness in his life but not an ultimate denial of his faith in Christ because who is the one who preserves us and protects us by the power of God? The Spirit of God, right? All the way into the end. It's a work of grace from beginning to, to end. God is faithful in the midst of our failure. Christ's power, brothers, is perfected in our weakness. I love what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, that if we are faithless believers, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Boy, that's encouraging, isn't it? That's encouraging. That like Peter, when we fail, Christ is faithful. He is our high priest who will preserve us all the way unto the end in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that your power is perfected in our weakness. Lord, we might be fooled into not wanting to acknowledge our weaknesses before you and before others who love us. But Lord, it's an acknowledgement of those weaknesses. When we recognize that we are not enough, that we are not sufficient, that then we are catapulted to the throne of grace to rest and to pursue and to relish and to diligently continue to pursue sanctification that is only found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, help us, even as we go into our small groups right now, help us to be men who are honest, who are transparent in a godly kind of way. Not so that we could sit around and sort of pat each other on the shoulder and say, it's okay, and move on and not have biblical answers. Lord, help us to be honest and transparent and together in gentleness and kindness and graciousness, put together biblical answers to the problems in our lives. Because we know that those whom you save from the penalty of sin are those whom you have also delivered from the power of sin and those who ultimately will be delivered from the presence of sin. And that begins now, Father. Help us, even in our imperfections, to be relying upon you and to, Lord, be open and honest with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.